Well, welcome to uh, week seven of our study on the doctrines of grace, and uh, this is the L in TULIP, Limited Atonement, uh, part two. Um, And as I explained last week, uh, really the, the, the key question as we think about this doctrine of limited atonement is, was the atonement intended to make salvation possible for everyone or certain for the elect. Uh, now, as I explained, you know, calling it limited atonement is a little bit of a misnomer because uh, both sides limit the atonement. Uh, the, the, the question isn't whether the atonement is limited, but is it limited in terms of its scope or its effectiveness? So the reform view, which is the one that tends to be called limited atonement, limits the scope. It says Christ died for the elect. Uh, not, not just for everybody, but for his people. And he died to make their salvation certain. Um, the definition I provided there, Jesus' atoning work fully secured the salvation of the elect. Now, the Arminian view limits the effectiveness. So it says the scope is unlimited. Jesus died for everyone in the same way. But many of those for whom he died will still be lost. Right? So his atonement wasn't effective to make certain the salvation of everyone he died for. Um, and so, the, again, the, the reform view is that the atonement is limited in terms of scope, but unlimited in terms of its effectiveness. Um, and, and last time, I, I, I tried to make more of a positive biblical argument for limited atonement by looking at John 6, John 10, and John 17. Uh, and, and building on what we had studied the week before that, when we talked about unconditional election, uh, where we saw that the Father elects a people for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Well, when we turn to the Gospel of John, we see Jesus repeatedly speaking of those his Father gave to him. Uh, and so, of course, well, these would be the elect. The Father gives the elect to Christ, and Jesus comes into the world with the mission of saving those the Father gave to him, and even making sure that not a single one of them is lost. He he has come to secure their salvation. Uh, And then it's once, especially as we'll talk more about next week, uh, once Jesus has accomplished that work of salvation, the Father and the Son then together send the Holy Spirit to come and apply that work to those same people for whom Christ died. So there's this perfect harmony in the way Father, Son, and Spirit work together. Uh, now, at the end of last time, there, there were some questions that were basically getting at, well, so, so what does this mean that Christ accomplishes salvation and the Spirit applies it? Um, and, and I wrestled this week, you know, is there any kind of analogy or any other way that I can bring some clarity uh, to what that's really getting at? And I'm not, this analogy is far from perfect, but maybe it will be helpful. Uh, so imagine for a moment that the sun suddenly vanished from existence. What would happen? Well, according to the scientists, it takes like eight minutes for the light from the sun to reach the earth. So the the moment the sun vanishes from existence, I'm pretty sure nothing would happen here on earth. You would still see the sun in the sky. You would still feel the heat of the sun's rays, and it would still be day on earth. But necessarily, definitely, inseparably, in just about eight minutes' time, The day on earth would suddenly be eclipsed by total darkness and night. 
Right? And so even though there's this separation in time, you could say, well, the loss of the sun was accomplished at time zero. But from the perspective of Earth, it's applied here on Earth eight minutes later. Well, basically the point is, limited atonement is saying that even more than any law of physics or nature, there is an inseparable and necessary connection between the work of the Son on the cross and the work of the Spirit in regeneration. And even though there's a time separation from when Christ accomplishes that salvation from when the Spirit applies it, they're so inseparable, it's, it's impossible that they could be somehow divided or disconnected. Because it's, it's the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together in perfect harmony as the one God. And so it's not that we're actually justified before God or that the benefits of Christ's work on the cross for us, you know, are received by us at the time of the crucifixion. It's not until the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and that we come to place our faith in Christ that we are now justified before God. A relationship changes, those benefits become ours. But the fact that the Spirit will do that for us is absolutely guaranteed by Christ's death for us. That's the key thing limited atonement is getting at. Christ died to fully secure the salvation of the elect. By laying down his life for us, he ensures our salvation. So, with that just clarification to kind of tie up last time, I, I hope at this point it, we have a fairly clear understanding of what limited atonement is. Uh, and at least from the Gospel of John, uh, we, we've seen some biblical support for it. Uh, now, today I want to accomplish two main things. First, I want to at least briefly address some of the biblical arguments against limited atonement, uh, because there are actually a number of verses that, that at least on the surface can seem to go against it. So, so what do we say to those verses? And then second, uh, I want to make a more theological argument for limited atonement based on our understanding of the cross itself and how it works, why it was necessary. Okay, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. You'll notice that you have particularly thick notes to follow along tonight. Uh, but hopefully that'll be helpful, you know, if, if, if you've missed things or it feels fast, uh, you've got the notes. Um, so first, what about verses that seem to oppose limited atonement? And, and I listed a lot in your notes. Of course, we're not going to have time to sort of walk through them all one by one. Um, but I, I wanted to put them there for you so that you can have them in mind as I try to provide at least some of the more general responses to some of these verses from the standpoint of limited atonement. Um, and I, I've grouped the verses into two main categories. Right? There are some that speak of God's desire for all or the world to be saved. And then there are others that, that speak more about Christ's work as being for all or the world or you know, seeming to possibly include the non-elect. Uh, now, for those that speak of God's desire for all to be saved... Uh, the objection to limited atonement would be, well, if God wants everyone to be saved, why would he design the atonement to only save some? Right? That, that, that seems like a, it, it comes into conflict with each other. So, so what do we do with verses like 1 Timothy 2.3? This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or, of course, John 3.16 speaks of God's great love for the world. So what, what, how do we explain these in light of limited atonement? Well, first thing to say would be God can will something in more than one sense. Uh, so, for example, the Bible in Ephesians 1 talks about how God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. Right? His sovereignty exp- extends to everything that is. And yet Jesus can tell us we're supposed to pray that God's will would be done on earth just like it is in heaven. So in one verse says God, you know, God works everything together according to the counsel of his will. And in the other verse, we're supposed to pray that God's will would be done as if sometimes it's not. And the point is the Bible it uses God's will or talks about God's desire in different senses. And, and we can say, well, there's one sense in which God can will something or desire it, but, but not sovereignly decree that it would necessarily come to pass. Um, so in a similar way, when we look at these verses, I, I think you know, one option is to say, well, these verses could be speaking of God's general disposition that all be saved, that, that he's a God who, who has a love for the whole world. He, he's a God who, who takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but genuinely wants the wicked to turn from their way and repent. But just because God has a will for that in one sense and a desire for that in one sense doesn't necessarily mean God has sovereignly decreed to save everyone or that he's designed the atonement to accomplish it. Okay, so that, that's, the, that's number one thing to kind of wrestle with as you look at these verses. You can say God desires it. It doesn't mean the atonement is designed around that. There's more than one way he can will something. Now, another thing we could say is we could ask the question, well, when the verse says maybe all, all of who? So 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But is this emphasizing all people in the sense of every individual person? Or is it all people in the sense, perhaps, of the previous verse that talks about kings and all who are in authority? And maybe this is talking about all people in the sense of kings and people in high places just as much as peasants and those who are poor, you know, all kinds of people. In other words, is, is this all people without exception or all people without distinction? Right? What, what exactly is the all getting at? Uh, so that's another of the kind of exegetical question that, that you have to work through in all these verses and you want to look at the context and try to understand. Now, what about the second group of passages, uh, which speak of Christ's atoning work as being for all or the world? Um, you know, if, if limited atonement is saying Christ only died for some, how, how do we make sense of that? Well, first, if world means every person without exception in every case, then some of these passages would teach universalism, not Arminianism. Okay, so for example... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Right, but of course, even the Arminian is going to say, 
God counts the trespasses of those who go to hell against them, right? Or, or John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But, but Arminians would agree that the sins of each and every individual in the whole world are not taken away, or else there would not be a hell, right? So, so since we know universalism is unbiblical, I think these verses actually support the idea that world very well can mean, and in fact some places does mean, not each and every individual in the world without exception. Um, now, a, a second point we could make, I, I think it's helpful to keep in mind that many proponents of limited atonement actually would argue that there's some benefit in Christ's atoning work for the non-elect. Now, now this, this is something that I think you'll find a lot of nuance, you'll find a lot of differences between you know, different folks within the camp of limited atonement on, uh, but some would connect Christ's atoning work with common grace. Some would, might connect it with the, the benefits that are particularly associated with those who are closely associated with the church. There's kind of a spillover of God's blessings to those who are his with those who are connected with them or close to them. Um, I, I think we, we probably should connect it with the, the blessing of the free offer of the gospel to all. Um, so th this is why, you know, many would say things like limited atonement means Christ didn't die for everyone in the same way, right? The, 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 the key thing with limited atonement is that Christ died specifically and specially for his people, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's no sense at all in which Christ died, it has application generally to everyone. Um, so my, my purpose tonight isn't to get in all the, the nuance and specifics of that, but, but just to point out that that's another possible exegetical approach with some passages. Uh, for example, in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, it speaks of false teachers who deny the master who bought them. Okay, so wait a minute. If they're false teachers, they're going to go to hell, but the master who bought them, what is, what is this talking about? Well, um, I think this is definitely referring to the Exodus and drawing some parallel between these false teachers and the rebellious Israelites who were redeemed by God and then rebelled in the wilderness. Um, and I think it's saying that there's some sense uh, in which these false teachers of Peter's day have been bought out of a corrupt, sinful lifestyle to get to be in the church. But then later in the chapter, it talks about how they are like pigs who were washed and returned to the wallowing in the mire. Um, and so in that sense, they have denied the master who bought them. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the benefit that they've received in, um, in some way from the work of Christ, just by being part of the, the community of faith and being brought out of a sinful lifestyle, well, they've, they've slung that back in the master's face uh, by returning to their old way of life. Um, so th there's ways we can wrestle through texts like that. And then, then a third thing is just like before, we again have to ask the question, all of who? Right? So we already looked at the, the beginning verses in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, well, as that continues, 1 Timothy 2.6, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Right? But, but again, is this all people without exception or all kinds of people? All people without distinction. Um, or again in 1 John 2, 2, 
He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, is this saying that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins in the sense of all of us who are believers, but that he also propitiated God's wrath toward all the unbelievers out in the whole world? Um, Or is this emphasizing that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of his people, not just right here, but from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the whole world? Right, so we, I, I think that the point here is not to have the time to look at all of these verses and, you know, kind of unpack all the context. But, but again, I just want to show you that um, you know, there, there are responses from a limited atonement view that I think uh, can be very helpful and compelling. And, and in fact, a verse like 1 John 2, 2 is actually very hard to interpret, you know, from the Arminian view because that word propitiation. How is he a propitiation for people that would go to hell? Um, and so, on that note, I want to transition now to this second thing I want to talk about. Okay, so we made sort of a positive argument for limited atonement. I've now tried to sort of make the defensive. Well, here's some other verses and why I don't think, you know, these verses are uh, clear arguments against it. Well, now I want to shift back to the more positive argument And this is a more theological argument. Um, And I want to do that by thinking about our understanding of the cross itself. How does the cross work? Why was the cross necessary? And how might that relate to this question of limited versus a general atonement? Um, And to do that, first, I, 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 I want to just clarify what is penal substitution? Okay, so penal substitution means that Jesus died on the cross to bear the punishment we deserve for our sins in our place. All right, so penal has to do with punishment, substitution. He, he bore that punishment in our place. Okay, that's penal substitution. And, and probably if you've been coming to this church for any length of time, you've heard that a thousand times. You know, like, it would be encouraging if that just seems very obvious and clear to you. Uh, that's something that, that we emphasize very much. Um, but, but what maybe you haven't thought as much about is how interconnected that is with lots of other aspects of our theology. Um, and historically, actually, many Arminians have denied penal substitution because of the tension it creates with the rest of Arminian theology. Now, not all Arminians deny it, um, but some do. And many of those who do hold to something called the governmental view of the atonement instead. Uh, And so I want to take a few minutes to briefly introduce you to the governmental view, um, because this does seem like something that is more and more people are teaching today, and you might come across, and... You know, it's one of those things where if you don't know what you're looking for, it can sound so similar to penal substitution. You might think, well, yeah, what's the difference? Like, th- this seems fine. But actually, it's a very, very different view. Uh, so I, in your notes, I provided this little schematic I found by, this is by a proponent of the view and how he summarizes it. Uh, and, and basically it says, when, when mankind sinned, God was put into a dilemma. On the one hand, 
God in his love wanted to maintain his law throughout his kingdom. This is for the good of his subjects. He would do this by executing the penalty upon the disobedient. This is how he would discourage sinning. Okay, so if God doesn't punish sin, then people think they can get away with it. And that would be worse for everybody because there will be more sin. On the other hand, God in his love wanted to pardon mankind. Pardon is the remission of the penalty. Okay, so God doesn't want to send us to hell because he loves us. The problem with this is that it weakens the law, encourages sin, and therefore endangers his kingdom. Okay, so God's moral governance and the wisdom of how he's leading is called into question if he just pardons sinners so easily or freely. Okay, so so how can God do both? How can he pardon mankind but not weaken his law or encourage sin? It was by substituting the eternal punishment of sinners with the blood atonement of Christ. God manifests to his subjects his regard for his law through the atonement even more than he would have through the penalty. Therefore, crime is prevented and discouraged through the atonement even while the penalty can now be safely, wisely, and lovingly removed. Okay, now as I said, at first, this may sound really similar to penal substitution because it's talking about God's love and his justice and how Christ's atonement allows God to uphold both. But here's here's the difference. Notice that Christ on this view, is not paying for the individual sins of individual people. In fact, Christ is not even paying for sins at all. On this view, Christ's suffering is an alternative to God enacting the sentence of the law. Christ is not a substitute bearing the penalty of the law in our place. He's an alternative. That's demonstrating that God is still just, that God still takes sin seriously, even though he's not enforcing the penalty of his law. Uh, It it would be kind of like this. If if, if you crashed your parents' $100,000 car, you felt bad about it. You wanted to do something, but you can't pay for it. Maybe you write them a very, very sincere, long apology note. You're, You're not paying for what you did, but you're trying to show the sincerity of your remorse. Well, In a similar way, this is saying that Christ's suffering is not paying for our sin, but showing or demonstrating or vindicating the integrity of God's justice and moral governance of the universe. Okay, so so Christ's atoning work doesn't, on this view, it doesn't actually save anyone, and it isn't intended for specific individuals, but it frees God to then offer pardon to anyone on whatever terms he chooses, namely repentance and faith. So he can offer pardon on those terms without his justice or moral governance being called into question or sin being encouraged in any way. Now, now if you're still kind of struggling to get your mind around exactly what this means, how is this different than penal substitution, here's what really makes it the clearest for me. Notice that according to the governmental view, God was already ready to forgive forgive us even before 
the cross. Like on this view, the cross isn't there to satisfy God. It's not there to make God willing to forgive you. It's there so that we can know that God is just even when he's forgiving sinners. Uh, so so it, it's not that God himself needs to be propitiated or satisfied. Um, the, the, the cross is really aimed at us. Uh, but penal substitution is based on the idea that God's own, that it's because of God's own nature that he demands satisfaction for sin or else he will not and cannot forgive it. Right? Penal substitution says, no, no, there, there's something about the very nature of God himself that justice, his own justice must be upheld or he cannot and will not be in relationship with us. He will not just overlook sin. The price has to be paid. God's own justice must be satisfied. Uh, and that's why on penal substitution, you know, yes, of course, Christ dying on the cross shows us how much God loves us. It shows us that God really is a just God. But first and foremost, the cross is aimed at God. I mean, if there's anything that Jesus is doing on the cross, he's offering himself as a sacrifice to God. To atone for our sins before God. To make propitiation before God for his people. Right? And, and, and this is where the Old Testament is so helpful. Because think about, what, what is a sacrifice? Well, God gives a whole you know, Old Testament to tell us all about sacrifices. And the, the most basic, obvious thing about a sacrifice is who is it offered to? Never to man. Always to God. Right? And, and, and for me, you know, when you realize, wait a second, the governmental view loses that. It, it, it turns the cross into God showing us something about himself. But it assumes God was already just, he was happy to forgive us without a cross. Penal substitution says, no, God has to be satisfied. God has to be propitiated. Christ had to die offering himself as the atoning sacrifice before God. Now, why do I share all that? Well, um, first of all, to say, look, even if you're not convinced of limited atonement, um, like, that's okay, don't, don't. Don't, don't buy into the governmental view. Um, as I said, not all Armenians buy into that. But I bring it up to point out that in the quest for logical consistency, that's where many who deny limited atonement have ended up. And, and why is that? Well, well, it's because if Christ died for everyone, as the Armenian wants to insist, but you also hold penal substitution... Well, that means that this, if he died for everyone, then the sins of everyone were imputed to him. And when he died on the cross, he was being punished as a substitute for everybody. And if that's what Christ was doing on the cross, how is it that anybody for whom he died could go to hell? I mean, how can people be punished for the sins that Christ already was punished for, that he already paid for. And th that would be double jeopardy. Th that, that would be calling God's justice into question because now he's punishing Christ for 
sins that he's going to turn around and punish other people for, and he, or he's going to punish those people for sins he already punished Christ for. And so you see, in penal substitution, there's this one for one, Christ for us. And there's no easy way to just generalize that. Right? He either died for our sins or he didn't. He either offered himself for us or he didn't. And, you know, some have tried to get around this by saying, well, maybe Christ died for all our sins except the sin of unbelief. Right? But, but the Bible just doesn't speak as if hell and God's wrath is restricted to punishing people for the sin of unbelief. I mean, Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And if we say Christ didn't die for the sin of unbelief, well, what about us when we struggle with unbelief? Does that mean there's no forgiveness for that? I mean, I, I sure hope not. Um, so that doesn't seem like a very good workaround. And, and that's why this governmental view becomes appealing. Because it allows you to say, well, Christ offered himself generally for all, and now God can just sort of offer forgiveness on the conditions of repentance and faith, and just whoever chooses to repent and believe, well, they're the ones who God chooses to save, so that you can see how that's attractive on one level, because it, that, that's consistent with you know, other things Armenians would want to say. But as I tried to point out, that brings with it some, I think, pretty serious other theological issues. So, again, if, if you're really committed to being Arminian, I think the best thing to do is affirm penal substitution and just live with the tension that creates for you. But in my opinion, the better thing to do would be to embrace limited atonement and reform theology with it. Now, as we wrap up for tonight, I do just want to end on a note of application. Uh, last week I concluded by emphasizing how limited atonement makes Christ's work personal. To think about Christ died for me. Uh, well, this week I want to conclude by thinking about how limited atonement connects with evangelism and specifically how it's a motivation for it. Uh, I, I think a lot of time we, 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 we kind of focus on trying to explain why limited atonement should not be a demotivation for evangelism. Right? People think, well, if Christ didn't die for everyone, well, how can I offer the gospel to everyone? And so we spend a lot of time saying, well, it's... No, limited atonement is not necessarily incompatible with the free offer of the gospel. It shouldn't demotivate evangelism. But in the limited time we have today, I want to focus on a way in which I think limited atonement is actually a positive motivation for evangelism. Uh, and, and one of the things that came to mind as I thought about this this week uh, is a story about these two Moravian missionaries uh, who felt this burden to share the gospel with African slaves. Uh, but they were told, like... You can't do that. You, we're not going to give you any access to them. You know, you, too bad. Well, so then they think, well, we're going to sell ourselves into slavery because then we can get access to go share the gospel with these slaves. And apparently as the boat, you know, they get on the boat and it's setting sail and you can imagine their, their families are weeping, knowing like we'll probably never see our sons again. Well, then one of the men cries out, shall not the lamb receive the reward for his sufferings? In other words, they were motivated to sell themselves as slaves, to, to go share the gospel, not just out of a burden for the lost, but a love for Christ, a yearning that he would receive the full reward for his sufferings. 
And, and you see, one of the things that limited atonement should really clarify for us is that when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased a people. The people he died for are his reward. And they are the people whom he deserves to have. That these people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are rightfully his. And of course, it's not like their salvation hangs in the balance based on our faithfulness. No, no, Christ will receive his reward. The Spirit will regenerate their hearts. But what a privilege we should feel to get to be the ones who bring the people for whom Christ died home. You know, as we think about Christ dying on the cross, that not just for us, but for them, how that should motivate us out of a love for Christ to want to go out there and bring his sheep into the fold. Friends, this, this should encourage Motivate evangelism. Christ loves his sheep. He died for them. We get to be the ones to go out and tell them this good news of the gospel. And so may we cry out with those Moravian missionaries, shall not the lamb receive the full reward for his suffering? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for this time to study uh, this doctrine of limited atonement. How we pray that Christ indeed would receive the full reward of his sufferings. May we be faithful to what you have called us to as your people. In his name we pray. Amen.